All right, the portion of scripture on which tonight's teaching is based is found in your service folder there from John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17. Again, tonight we're looking at sacrificial love. And here Jesus teaches his disciples very shortly before his crucifixion. One of the last things he teaches them is this. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know all of his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have now made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. And this is God's word. Mentioned we're doing a series. This is the first of four weeks uh, annually now. I, I'm trying to run a series on our St. Marcus core values. And one of those core values is sacrificial love. And if you're looking for a portion of scripture that defines love better than any other portion, at least for my money. Each, each of these core values we sort of hang in, on and anchor in a specific root passage in Scripture. And the passage that I read a few moments ago from 1 John chapter 3, particularly verse 16, let me read that to you again here real briefly. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we now ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Did you catch the definition there? Other-focused self-sacrifice. That's, that, that's the idea of love in Scripture. People use love any number of different sorts of ways, but unless your definition of love has this idea of unwavering commitment to place the, the best interest of somebody else ahead of your own, and it comes at personal sacrifice and personal cost to you, it's not the biblical concept of love. I'm not saying that people can't use the word love differently and that people do use the word love differently. I'm saying if it's not that, unwavering commitment to put the best interest of somebody else ahead of yourself at personal cost to yourself, it does, it's not really the biblical definition of love. And what that therefore teaches us is uh, I don't know that you would get that definition if you simply observed and listened to the way our society shows love and uses the word love. I try to do that a lot. And let me tell you what I'm talking about here for just a second. It's, it's wedding season, if you don't know. Uh, June through September, uh, this time of year in this part of the country, this without question is, is wedding season. And as a pastor, I then get to speak a lot uh, in regards to this topic of love during wedding season. And I also get to hear a lot of other people talk about the topic of love. And, you know, I figure, you know, if, if I'm going to be wearing a microphone, if, I'm, if what I'm saying and what I'm thinking and feeling and my sentiments are going to be amplified, I better know what it is that I'm talking about on this topic of love. And furthermore, what's interesting is, see, as a pastor, I typically preach to a specific congregation, but weddings are unique 
unique crowds because it's, it's essentially the friends and family of the wedding party, right? And so it's, it's a mixed background and people from all over the place. And if I'm going to be talking about love, I not only think it's important that to some extent I can speak intelligently about what the Bible has to say about love, but I also want to be able to speak about what the world generally teaches in regards, what the world's experts are saying in regards to love, and then sort of compare and contrast the two. And so what I did this year in preparing for wedding season is I started listening to uh, the, the top podcast on the New York Times podcast network. It's called Modern Love. And the essence of it is basically this. It is uh, famous actors and actresses reading uh, award-winning essays that have been published in the New York Times about this topic of love. And very interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I was preparing for uh, two of my friends, Craig and Jenny. I don't know if Craig and Jenny are here tonight. Craig and Jenny, are you here? No, then we won't celebrate your two-week anniversary. But two weeks ago, they got, they got uh, married here at St. Marcus. And uh, one of the, the essays that I listened to in, uh, in pre preparation for that, it caught my eye. It was called, The Secret to Marriage is Never Getting Married. Now, as somebody who's going to be celebrating my 12th wedding anniversary in about a week or so, I thought this was very interesting news. You know, like, maybe I've been doing this wrong. The secret to marriage is never actually getting married. And it's, it's really well written. It's by uh, a New York Times bestselling author named Gabrielle Zevin, who's a, a fantastic writer. And she repeatedly throughout the essay refers to this guy that she's with, his name is Hans, as the man that I'm not married to. So sort of tongue-in-cheek. She says, the man that I am not married to I have been with for 21 years. I met him when I was 18 years old. He was 21 years old. We fell in love right away, and, uh, but we didn't get married. And the initial reason why they didn't get married, she says, is because he was actually the victim of identity theft. And it led to all sorts of financial problems and complications, and it was a, it was a you know, um, a legal nightmare sort of thing. His credit score was ruined, and in order to try to find a place in New York City, instead of getting married and torpedoing both of their credit scores, they decided not to get married and at least put the, the deed in her name. And that was the initial practical reason why they didn't get married. But after that, as the, the months and the years went by, they found more and more practical reasons why they thought it doesn't make sense for us to get married. And despite the fact that after years, they had friends and they had family and they actually had even their accountant saying, yeah, you guys really should get married after all this time. It makes a ton of sense for you. They, they, they kept finding what they thought were good, logical reasons not to get married. And near the end of the essay, uh, Gabrielle Zevin goes from essentially giving arguments or excuses as to why it's logical not to get married to sort of romanticizing the idea of non-marriage. And here's what she says. I thought this was so interesting. She says, when the law doesn't bind you as a couple, you have to choose each other every day. And maybe the very act of choosing changes you for the better. But of course, successfully married people must know this already. She says, I wake up in the morning and I look at Hans and I think, I love you and I choose you above any other person. I chose you 21 years ago and I choose you today. I believe you to be a constant in my life and I a constant in yours. Loving you is the closest thing I have to faith. You know, what she's doing there, she's reacting to this idea that marriage is just kind of this cold, lifeless institution that people are bound into and once you get in it, you can stop choosing one another and uh, she says from her perspective, 
You know, when you're bonded like that legally and you have the option to not choose to show and express love to one another, it leads to sometimes squeezing vitality out of marriage relationships. And I'll tell you what, as somebody who's done marriage counseling for over 10 years, she might be on to something. I think she makes very well-articulated, valuable points here about marriage as sort of a cold contract. Here's the problem. What she never actually brings up in the essay is this thing that in the old marriage vows they referred to as the for better or for worse in sickness and in health, uh, for richer, for poor, as long as we both shall live. That concept, she never actually brings that up. In other words, let me put it like this. What if we approached all relationships in life as though they were some kind of, uh, kind of consumeristic choice that we had to make on a day-in, day-out basis? What if you apply this to all your relationships? What if uh, you're a parent and you know, you've got a, a young kid who is crying and waking you up every evening and you're struggling to get by with just a couple hours of sleep? And in order for you to continue to be a loving, Christian, a loving parent in general, uh, when that child wakes you up on the next night and they're wet and they're screaming and they're crying and shrieking and you only tend to them if you feel like, well, I choose you. I choose you ahead of my warm bed. I choose you uh, ahead of getting a couple more hours of sleep. You have to consciously make a choice to do that. Would that overall improve parenting or not? I think there's something about an obligation. There's something about responsibility and duty that actually moves us in a better direction for ourselves. Think about it like this. Let me give you a different relationship. Uh, in addiction recovery relationships, there's typically a sponsor and a sponsee, right? What if the sponsor only ever picked up the phone when the sponsee was calling? And the sponsee is, is you know, they have a sponsor because when they face temptation, they need somebody to be there for them in the thick and the thin and in the difficult times and to actually pick up and be a resource when they're facing troubles. What if the sponsor, in order to actually ever pick up the phone, had to actually say, yes, I choose you ahead of everything else and everyone else in my life. That's the only time they ever picked up. I don't think that'd be a real great sponsor. Or even in romantic relationships. What if you literally every day simply had to make a choice in order to make that work in the sense that what if uh, perhaps another commodity walks into your life and on that particular day, maybe it's not the entire package, but one thing about that person, they're a little bit nicer to you, their hair is a little shinier and their, their teeth are a little bit brighter and that happens to be a really valuable trait to you on that given day. What if you give up everything that was over there just for that one thing on a daily choice that you have made? I think you understand what I'm saying, right? If, if, what if every relationship in life were as flimsy as a daily choice? In other words, uh, I think it's self-evident that the deepest relationships in life, the deepest love and most intimate relationships in life are not those in, in which you simply on a daily basis make a choice, I choose you, but it's those that on days that sometimes you feel like saying no and yet you stay with the person anyways. That seems to be deeper. And so I, I think what this, by the way, this is the 21st century question about relationships not just romantic relationships, but in the 21st century, technology has allowed us to do relationships as it's allowed to do us to do everything else on our own terms. Because I can go to school when I want and I can eat when I want and I get, get stuff dropped off at my house within 24 hours and I can stream all the content that I could ever possibly want on my own terms. Can I do relationships on my own terms? Can I do God on my own terms? That's the real question. 
And so essentially, I think what Gabrielle Zevin is saying is, you know what, the idea of relationships as cold social contracts, that's not good enough, and she's right. And I think that's a good critique. But the idea that you flip over to the idea of relationships being simply daily consumeristic choices, I think what I said is, is that also doesn't work. So the question is, is there a love in life that is higher than just laws? And is there a love in life that is higher than just likes? And the Bible says there is. It's called a covenant. Covenantal love, or as we're referring to it here tonight, sacrificial love is actually different. It's described for us and defined for us in 1 John 3, but it's commanded to us. If you want to call yourself a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ, you can't not have this concept of sacrificial love in your life, Jesus says. He commands us to love like this in our lesson tonight. I'm going to give you three quick points about it. It's the what, the how, and the why of sacrificial love. The what, first of all, is it's a command to love one another. You can see that in verses 9 and 10. He, he explicitly says it in verses 12 and 17. It, like, there's no guessing. This is my command. Love one another. Now, that, the key phrase there is one another. If you don't know, that's a phrase that comes up uh, dozens of times in the New Testament. It's one of the recurring themes of the New Testament, one another. And so there's statements like serve one another, forgive one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, love one another. Jesus has said this once in John chapter 13 already. He says it now twice in John chapter 15. It, what he's saying is it is absolutely impossible to love God without loving one another. This, by the way, again, for individualistically minded people who are capable in life, by and large, of doing stuff largely on their own. It's, it's shocking, particularly to young Christians. It's shocking when I try to teach this concept. What do you mean I have to have relationships with other people, i.e., like a church? What do you mean I have to have relationships with other people if I'm going to have a relationship with God? I can do a relationship with God on my own. And the Bible says, sorry, you can't, because it is impossible to love God without loving one another. You need other people. Now, anybody who um, understands that the biblical teaching of the Trinity is not surprised by this. Why? Because the Trinity is the original basis and teaching of uh, friendship. It's, it's fascinating. Every other human relationship, or every relationship, I think, by and large, is created. Parenting was created by God. Uh, uh, brothers and sisters were created by God, that sort of thing. Friendship? The three persons of the Trinity were loving and serving one another before time ever began. Friendship was not created, it just existed. It just, before there was a universe, there was friendship. That's how fundamental it is to a triune God. What God is therefore saying is it's essential for your life if you are to exist in him. It's precisely the reason why in Genesis chapter 2 when God creates Adam, you remember his assessment, after creating all the universe and saying it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, he makes an assessment of Adam in Genesis 2 that's actually kind of startling and he says, well, this is not good. It's, it's designed to be shocking. Why is it shocking? Because Adam is perfect, Adam is sinless, Adam is living in the middle of paradise, Adam has all his basic needs met and Adam daily walks with God. What on earth could possibly not be good? And God says, it's the fact that Adam is alone. Now, why is that? Why is that so not good? Because Adam, unlike the animals, was actually created in the image of God. And that means something about the nature of who Adam is doesn't work unless he has another human. 
Why? Because if humans are created in the image of God to mimic and, and reflect the image of God, it's impossible to exist like a person in the image of God unless you have another to put your head, ahead of yourself and love and serve ahead of you. Adam needs somebody else. He needs another human. Uh, you can't, the command, the what is the command to love one another? Not just serve God. You can only do that by loving one another. How do we do that? Um, same as Adam, according to the Bible, you can't actually fully become you unless you have another, unless you have self-sacrificial, other-focused love being expressed in your life. Um, and really, in other words, unless you have friendship. And what is friendship? Sometimes we think of friendship just in terms of uh, like common interests that we have with other people. No, that's, that's like a club. That's not friendship. Friendship is when you're able to look at somebody else and see the deficits that exist in your life and use whatever you have to help meet those deficits. Um, Adrian and I went to the movies earlier this week uh, to see, we saw a movie that just came out. It was based on, I know a lot of you read these books as kids, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. You know, uh, they just made a movie on the basis of that. And actually, they have a bunch of allusions in the movie to a bunch of other like scary movies throughout history. And one of them that caught my eye was The Bride of Frankenstein. And the reason for that, that's a really old movie. But earlier in the day, I was reading uh, a commentary on John chapter 15, and the author actually made a reference to The Bride of Frankenstein. You know why? It's got this fantastic story of friendship in it, which is, was, I thought, so interesting. Uh, basically, in The Bride of Frankenstein, which is, you know, in like a 1930s Boris Karloff uh, movie, which every movie early on in Hollywood, if you had a monster, Boris Karloff was the guy. But uh, basically, it's him. Uh, there's one scene in it where he's running through the woods, running away from a mob that's trying to uh, essentially attack him and, and imprison him and kill him. And he's stumbling through the woods, and he, he comes across a cottage that's there, and it's inhabited by a blind man. And the blind man invites him to come into his house, and obviously the blind man can't tell that this is a monster, but he, he can tell something's off because this individual can't speak. Nonetheless, he invites him to come in, and you know what he says? He says, you know what? Clearly you can't speak, but I can't see. I, can't, I cannot see. You cannot speak. Maybe we can help one another out. Maybe we can fill in one another's deficits. Maybe we can become friends. And he does something very interesting you'd never see in a movie today fascinatingly, at that moment he gets down on his knees and he starts praying and he thanks the Lord for bringing somebody to him that can help cure his loneliness. And they befriend one another over the course of the next several days and uh, the blind man, he plays music, he plays his violin uh, for the monster and he teaches the monster like some rudimentary speech. You know, it's, it's, it's grunting but it's, it's uh, good and food and friend and after a couple days the mob that was tracking him down gets to the house and they find the monster there, and they barge their way in, and a fight ensues, and actually the house ends up burning down, and tragically, everybody, including the blind man, is killed in the fire. The next scene is the monster stumbling through the woods, sort of groping about, and he's mumbling sadly to himself, saying, friend, friend. And you know what the point is? This is a pretty brilliant point for a 1930s monster movie, but uh, the point is this. The director's trying to tell you the only humanity that somebody, even a monster, can develop is when another human grabs them by the hand, pulls them into their life, and calls them a friend. You hear that? 
the only way any individual ever develops any humanity is when another human grabs hold of them, comes into their life, and calls them a friend. Let me put that more positively. Even a monster can be humanized through the sacrificial love of friendship. Other-focused self-sacrifice makes us human beings. It makes us who we were meant to be. It makes us who we were destined to be. And it's every bit sensible then that when Jesus commands his disciples, including us, he says, here's what I want you to do. I command you, love each other as I have loved you. And it's also illustrative that he gives us the perfect example of this. Because for humanity, what was our deficit? What did we need? Humans are fairly highly capable. We can send humans to the the moon, we can uh, send missiles around the planet, but we can't attain perfection. And so Jesus has to come into our lives and gift to us our massive deficit. Um, he has to bring us perfection. And what's interesting is you can tell how imperfect we are because ultimately don't even really know what we need. You can see that with Jesus' disciples. You notice in the text what he tells them, you did not choose me, but I chose you. The disciples didn't think to choose Jesus on their, on their own. The one thing, according to the Bible, that can give humanity hope, the one thing that can give humanity a future, the one thing that can give humanity forgiveness and salvation is Jesus Christ. But no human on their own thinks to choose Jesus on their own. What that tells you, if nothing else, it tells you about the grace of God. It also tells you about the inherent blindness of humanity. We don't know what we actually need, and therefore we don't even really know by nature how to live and certainly we don't know by nature how to love you know what jesus does about that he not only just shows us and tells us but he loves us and how does he do that he does it by laying his life down for people who don't deserve it thereby making them friends and some people might say, you know what, I have gotten pushback on this before where I've said, yeah, Jesus, nobody's done anything like this, laid their life down like this. And some, some people have correctly said, you know what, there are other people who have laid their life down. Lots of people do that. Civil servants do that all the time, right? Uh, officers and firefighters and, and, and military veterans. And, and it's, 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 uh, I'm not negating that. That's noble and good and right and admirable, and we should applaud that as a society. But it's different from what Jesus did. When a civil servant maybe runs into a building and rescues a little kid and that servant dies in the process and saves the kid's life, uh, it's not the same thing. They've saved them temporarily because the civil servant now has died. But if they wouldn't have rushed into the building, you know what would have eventually happened to them? They would have died. So they expedited their death. But it's not the exact same thing as completely laying down your life. And when that civil servant saved the child's life from the fire, and that child was saved to life, they crossed over from death to life, well, yes and no. They were saved to a longer life until they inevitably die. And here's my point. It's not to minimize the work of civil servants who do heroic things. The point is, let's not minimize what Jesus Christ did. Jesus is the only human being who was ever not on a trajectory towards death. And that means that everything that he did regarding death on the cross was completely voluntary. In other words, when he went to the cross, he exchanged all of our sins and all of our hell and all of our punishment for all of his rightness and all of his perfection and all of his heaven. He switched places with us at the cross. Now, the, the great question is, why would you make that trade? 
Why would you trade eternal pleasure for unthinkable pain? Why would you trade heaven for hell? Why would you trade life for death like that? Why would Jesus make that trade? And the only possible solution, according to the Bible, is what? Sometimes people do crazy things when they're in love. How much must your Savior have loved you in order that he would be willing to go to such great lengths in order to save you? Now, what our lesson tonight tells us is if that stirs up anything inside of you, and for some of us it does and for some of us it doesn't, if that, if that grace doesn't stir up anything inside of you, the only thing I'm asking you to go is go and look at the cross a little bit more and let it take hold of you. But if that grace does stir up something inside of you, what Jesus is telling you tonight is go and do likewise. Love one another like that. So the what is the command to love one another. The how is by laying your life down, just as Jesus has done for you, as he says there in verse 13. The why is because he saved you and because the only way you're going to experience the joy that you were meant for is when you do the same thing that he's done for you. It's absolutely fascinating to me that the greatest torture we allow in our justice system is something called solitary confinement. It's not that we do something to somebody else, it's that we don't allow humans to interact with another human. That drives a person insane. It's absolutely fascinating to me that if you take a little child who has recently been born and you don't touch the child and you don't hold the child and you don't rock the child, that child will, will not just go crazy, that child will actually die. Why? Because human beings were meant to be together. Human beings were meant to love one another. Jesus loved us when we were unlovable. Jesus loved us while we were still in our sins as enemies of his. He still loved us because of grace. And he says, if you believe that, that, that faith, it not only saves you, but actually it transports his spirit inside of you so that you start loving other people the exact same kind of way. And those of you who are involved at St. Marcus, uh, let me just ask you, you know, we have maybe about a, almost a thousand people who, who identify themselves as members here at St. Marcus. If every single person took a step closer to loving one another the way that Jesus loves us, what kind of impact would that have on our Brewer Hill neighborhood, our Harambe neighborhood, if you could take a thousand people that loved just like Jesus loved, what would that do to a community? What would that do to its neighbors and neighborhood? Uh, I read a story a couple weeks ago that was incredibly interesting, I thought. Um, Martha's Vineyard is a little island off the coast of Massachusetts. It's also uh, known historically as being something of a deaf utopia. You know why? Because it was settled back in the 1600s, and one of the original founders was a guy who apparently carried like this dominant genetic anomaly for deafness. And therefore, right up into the like mid-1900s, one out of every four children born <laughs> on Martha's Vineyard was born deaf. And yet what researchers found it out, much to their surprise, is that the children who are born and raised deaf on Martha's Vineyard, uh, because, you know, there's... there's some level of intermarriage and, and whatever, uh, that, that gene just kept getting passed down and, and became a, a kind of a dominant thing. But researchers found that deaf children raised in Martha's Vineyard, they married at the same rate, they graduated at the same rate, and they had income levels at the same rate as their peers who could hear. Now, what's unique about that? 
it's the only spot on earth that's like that. There's not a single other spot in the world where there's that level of uh, disability where you have the same kind of success rates. In fact, if you just go across the bay and just go to Massachusetts or Connecticut or Rhode Island, they have many more services there for the deaf, of which on Martha's Vineyard they have none. But they have many more services for the deaf right across the bay. And those people, they graduate, they marry, and their income levels are about half of the general population. And you know what researchers found out why the, the cause for the success on Martha's Vineyard is? Every single man, woman, and child born and raised in Martha's Vineyard learns sign language just like they learn English. See, the people who are deaf on the island are not treated as outsiders. They're treated as equals. They are loved as friends. And the people flourish. See, here's the catch. We sometimes think we're doing something if we're serving people. Clearly, services aren't enough. Serving people is not enough. To love them, you have to befriend them. And it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus knew this. A servant is like a, a professional who delivers services, but a friend is somebody who invites you to come on into their life and they're willing to go all the way deeper into your life. And so St. Marcus, you know, this is our third annual outdoor service. Um, on the basis of the way society is trending, I'm not sure that, you know, for the next 20 years we'll be able to hold an outdoor service. I don't know if that will be legal. I don't know if our neighbors will allow it. I don't know if, uh, you know, 20 years from now, 2039, I will be in my late 20s, early 30s, and I don't, I don't know exactly where society will land on that particular issue. I, what, I will, what I will say is, if our neighbors do happen to allow it 20 years from now, I don't think it will be simply because we're trying to, quote unquote, serve our neighbors. I think it's, if they allow it, it'll be because we befriended them and we loved them like Christ befriended and loved us. And they reciprocated that friendship. Jesus is the ultimate friend who came into our lives with sacrificial love and he invites us to come all the way into his life. What would it look like for us to go and do likewise? I don't exactly know, but let's pray and ask him to help us continue to figure that out. Lord Jesus, you laid down your life at the cross undeservedly, but in doing so, you loved us beautifully, befriended us generously, and shared your eternal blessings with us. Whatever that looks like, help us to be better friends to our Brewer Hill and Harambe neighbors, and may it be to your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.